The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good evening, and welcome to IMC's Refuge class. I am delighted to be part of this and to offer it. If you're new here, uh, one thing, uh, if uh, the sound system is not loud enough for you, there is a hearing assistant devices that some people have. They're on the counter just outside, and you're welcome to help yourself with that. <clears throat> and, um, and if you're just, man- just managing to get along with the loudness of my voice now, um, because the topic of refuge is a little bit of a, you know, heartfelt kind of topic, um, there's a risk that my voice will get lower. <laughs> so if you, you, you know, if you might want to get the hearing system device anyway. So, um, those of you who might be new here, my name is Gil, and I'm one of the teachers here at IMC. And um, many of you I recognize, but not everyone. Um, every time I do this class, there's people who come from out of somewhere. <laughs> and I don't want to say exactly where, but they're new to here. And I'm delighted to see new people and del- delighted that people are interested in this and are curious to find out what it's about. And... Um, the idea is uh, for us to offer this class uh, at once every two or three years uh, with the idea that that's kind of the cycle by which kind of new people come along and are inspired and uh, have an interest in this core Buddhist practice of refuge. And um, the, um, it is a core practice. Um, and it's sometimes uh, it's very much appreciated and valued, and I think sometimes it's undervalued. Um, maybe we don't talk about it that much. And classically in Buddhism, it's probably probably the most common ritual that Buddhists will do. Anytime Buddhists will go to any anything that remotely like a, 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 a religious holiday, a religious event. Um, something where that involves kind of coming together more than just to meditate. But even sometimes to meditate, people will chant the refuges. It's kind of done, you know, it's kind of almost like the central thing that's done. And people who are born Buddhists will sometimes grow up chanting the refuges, maybe not without even understanding the meaning of it, but, but certainly understanding the devotional or heartfelt qualities and dedication that it might entail or involve. For people who are convert Buddhists, people who don't grow, didn't grow up Buddhist, um, refuge might seem like a very foreign idea, partly because um, it's a, often associated with faith. And, um, and uh, I think a lot of Western Buddhists, uh, the, the, the doorway of faith is sometimes not the, most, the first thing they come to, first way they come to Buddhism or practice. Um, they come often for pragmatic reasons, practical reasons, because there's a lot of stress or some kind of uh, distress in their life. And they've heard that mindfulness, they've heard meditation can kind of help. And um, so they come and, and they try it out. And if um, and sometimes we have people coming to IMC and uh, they'll tell me, oh, my therapist sent me here. And, um, and so if I started off, say, oh, you started, well, great, let's work on your faith. 
um, you know, that would not really work, you know, that the people are here for pragmatic reasons. And there are people who will start meditating because of their stress in their life or stress at work or something, and they find that <clears throat> it calms them down, and it's kind of nice. And so they find it's beneficial, and so they'll do it every day. And they find it just helps nice. It's, they're calm, and it's good, and that's it. You know, just it's a nice way of get, becoming calm. And, um, you know, they have other things which are much more important in their lives than meditation. Uh, but it's just kind of like brushing your teeth, you know. It's something you do every day, but in terms of the list of things which, you know, you most love and are most devoted to, most inspired by, uh, I, for most people, brushing your teeth is not up there that high. Um, and so meditation is kind of like part of mental hygiene. And so people will do it, and just matter of fact. And that's wonderful. Right? There's no problem with that. Uh, some people, will, uh, will, uh, as practice develops or some way or other, will come to an understanding that there's much more to this whole Buddhist thing than just a little bit of stress reduction or being calm, de-stressing. But they see uh, in Buddhism uh, insights, they see values, uh, understandings, uh, practices that um, are applicable in all circumstances of their life applicable in some of the most challenging and difficult uh, crises of, uh, existential crises of one's life. Um, they get a diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis or a serious diagnosis and they're dying or they don't know what's going to happen. Or someone they know, a loved one dies or they become unemployed and maybe even homeless. And there's all kinds of things that can happen. And they discover that uh, what they've learned about uh, paying attention, what they've learned about paying attention to uh, the reactivity of the mind, the attachments of the mind, what they've learned about generosity and kindness and love, um, that, that this uh, uh, applies in these difficult situations in such a uh, significant way that they're able to go through these challenges with a lot more freedom, a lot more ease, a lot more happiness than uh, they could if they, um, you know, they had before. They never, And they realize that this Buddhism stuff is not just for stress reduction. This is for living a, a wise life, for a free life, for a devoted life, for a loving life, in all circumstances of one's life. And it becomes not only so, so it becomes they see how universally important it is for them, or valuable it is. But then after a while, they see you know this is actually more important than a lot of the things I do in my life. It turns out that. The sense of well-being, the freedom, the love, the connection to the society, to the world, to nature that I get from what this practice does or what these values do, that um, this is more important than watching TV, for example, to be kind of... This is more important than maybe the work that I do. Um, this, I, there are couples I know who love themselves and care for them, who's very clear, they know, they know that for each of them, that the, their connection to the Dharma, to this practice, uh, somehow touches something so profound and so deep inside of them that uh, their devotion to the Dharma is greater than the devotion to them to each other as a couple. Mm-hmm. And um, and occasionally, you know, a spouse will feel threatened by that, but sometimes, especially if they both share it, they understand that, and that makes complete sense. Uh, it's kind of like you know you told your partner that um, you, you love them, but you're more committed to breathing. <laughs> you know, they would probably, okay, it makes some sense. So, you know, it's, it's something that's so intimate or so integral or to one's life 
that it's, you know, it's not threatening the relationship. It's not saying that, you know, that you're second best, but it's something so kind of, you know, it's kind of like who you are. It's, you know, it's like something that's so deep and full. Um, and so, you know, maybe, so there's this range of being involved with Buddhism from just, you know, being coming calm and it makes a little bit, life a little bit better to realizing that it's applicable in one's whole life in very significant ways. And more than that, that the way it's applicable and the effect it has uh, is of greater value than many of the things that people have been pursuing and engaged in for a long time. And, and, um, and so there can be a feeling then of being inspired by it, being devoted to it, being committed to it. Um, and so one of the ways that this commitment, the inspiration, the devotion, or the, the sense of meaning that it has is to, is to affirm it celebrate that, uh, acknowledge it, let it flower in this ceremony, in this act, what's called going for refuge. Um, Maybe to say it's a ceremony or a ritual in some people's minds will belittle its value. Um, But the the actual verb, the language, is a language of walking. One walks for refuge. Uh, So we say going for refuge, but the Pali word means to walk. And I love the word walk because that's something you do with your whole being. You don't, you know, send your feet out walking and stay home and, you know, have tea. Um, you know, you, when, you're, when your legs are going to walk, you go along. All of you goes along. So when you walk for refuge, you go for refuge, you bring all of yourself along. And so this act of stepping into this uh, refuge is a very important part of the Buddha Dharma. And many Buddhists will do this repeatedly and happily and and from time to time, some people will feel like um, not not just a customary thing to do because you go to a ritual or a ceremony or go to, at the beginning of retreats, we always do it. It's one of the most common places we do it in our insight tradition. Um, but uh, because it comes as a, a significant to kind of make a, a, a more significant affirmation, a more significant acknowledgement, a more significant commitment or... Uh, connection to this the value that one has discovered in the Dharma. And this is the purpose of this class. I'm not here to make you into Buddhists. I'm not here to impose or you know some idea of the Dharma, some idea of what refuge means, and that you have to kind of fit yourself into it. what i'm what I'm actually much more interested is to see if there's something that's touched you, something that's awakened in you, something of value that you've experienced for yourself that you see reflected in the refuges. And, um, and that it has value for you. And it's a, so, such a kind of value that you would like to um, be a little more committed to it. You'd like to celebrate it. You'd like to have it live in you more fully in the way that sometimes doing a ritual or a ceremony or a celebration can kind of make something more real or more full in something. And we do that for all kinds of, you know, we do public rituals because, you know, that, uh, like, you know, so there's commitment ceremonies that couples will do, marriages and things. And, uh, you, know, it, you, you know, you could kind of meet your friend at Starbucks and, and kind of, you know, yeah, you know, Let's spend our life together. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> you know, can I have another latte, please? And that's good. 
Uh, or you can invite all your friends and your family together and you can put on good clothes and have a nice setting and it's a meaningful place and set up in a way where you're kind of like surrounded by the loved ones and caring people. And in front of all the people, these people you care for, you can say, you know, you know, will you live this life with me? And, and, and the person says, yes. And like, oh, my, well, now they're serious. <laughs> this means something. And it means something not just for the community and people, I think it means something for our, our own hearts. It's uh, to, to, to state something out loud and with a way that's meaningful and the kind of way that a ritual does where it's more intentional and more full and there's a container or context for it, uh, makes something come alive or makes it kind of be remembered or makes it more accessible in the future. Or It's kind of like a turning a corner and this is important and now I'm, I'm, I don't really want to be the same after this. I want to be different because of this. So, um, uh, I would like this uh, class, the four weeks, and then the fifth week we'll have the ceremony, for those of you who'd like to do it, um, to, uh, to be very personal for you. And I'm not to hope, I'm not, I don't want to, if I do teaching here, it isn't so much I'm going to teach you what it is, what Buddhism is, but rather I want to teach just enough that maybe it helps you discover or acknowledge uh, recognize what's been important for you and what, what, is, what, what in you corresponds to these three refuges that we're going to be uh, doing. So that when we come time to do the ceremony, if you'd like to do it, that, um, that uh, uh, it's not like you're receiving anything, but rather we're, we're bringing something to flower. Something's, something's already in you is coming out a little bit more fully. Does that make sense? Okay. So refuge. The word is sarana in Pali. And, um, and sometimes in the Pali commentaries, it's called like a cave or a place you go to be safe. And because of that, and because of the English word refuge or being, uh, becoming a refugee, um, uh, sometimes it has a kind of a passive feeling like you're going away from something or... Um, but in, uh, in this Buddhist tradition, going for refuge um, is a very powerful act. And it's connecting to something that's very important. There are three refuges that people take. They're, and uh, they can see each is being separate or being somehow integrated together. And this is uh, taking refuge, going for refuge in the Buddha, going for refuge in the Dharma, and going for refuge in the Sangha. And um, uh, these, uh, the, the value that these have is represented by sometimes being called the three jewels. Um, these are the three jewels of Buddhism. So some of the gems. Uh, the power of going for refuge is such that um, the tradition says that um, once you, uh, it, it, it's a really, it can be for some people, uh, a, a transformation or a change that's really t- if it's really taken to heart um, and I'm not like saying it has to be this way for you but uh, if, it, if it's really taken to heart deeply that it um, overcomes a lot of fear from people because people realize nothing to fear anymore so what is it about refuge or going for refuge that helps overcome fear why would it do that how would it do that 
Some, for some people, uh, it's very powerful because it gives a life meaning. Some people live a meaningful, meaningless life where they don't really have a lot of meaning. And uh, so it, it, uh, going for refuge kind of um, places one's life in a purposeful uh, fashion. It shows a path of practice, an important thing to do with one's life. It shows values and teachings and orientations that are applicable as we live our life in all circumstances. And so we're not lost, we're not confused, it's not meaningless what's happening. But uh, the refuge, the idea of refuge and what the practices that come out of it, uh, now give us something that now I know what I'm about, now I know what I can do here, there's a path for me. This is purposeful. This is what my life is about. And I can do this in all circumstances. So, th- so for some people, you know, become, now their life becomes full of purpose in a way they didn't before. Um, and then there's, uh, for some people, uh, the most radical transformation, one of the, one of the f- f- very radical transformations come from go- going for refuge. And one, maybe some of you will decide, forget it. This is not worth it. And that is, it's said that uh, if you really go for refuge fully, really understand what refuge is, you would never complain again. <laughs> Isn't that something? You know, so what is it about these refuges that, you know, that help you overcome, you know, and complaining, that you have, no per- you have no reason to complain anymore? What is that about? How does that work? So no fear, no meaninglessness in a certain way, and no complaining. So if you're interested in that, stay, stay tuned, stay involved. Um, and then in addition to uh, these um, three refuges, the, the refuge ceremony, uh, going for refuge, is intimately linked to um, uh, uh, committing oneself to what's called the five precepts. Um, kind of the, uh, that's what the English word for it. The, the Pali words for these five ethical precepts is maybe is a little bit less intimidating than how the English word sounds to some people. Um, they're called the training steps. So the five steps in the training that people take. And why that's less intimidating to some people is that um, it doesn't have the same level of a, the feeling of a commandments or a vow or like some absolute, like this is like you better do this or else, you know, that lightning will strike or something. Um, but rather the idea of training means that uh, you don't quite have to be perfect at it yet. Otherwise there's no point to train. But rather you're training, you aspire to live by these uh, ethical guidelines. Uh, the ethical trainings. So one trains oneself in not killing. One trains oneself in not taking what is not given. One trains oneself in not engaging in sexual misconduct. One trains oneself in not lying. And one trains oneself in not getting intoxicated with drugs and alcohol. And, um, uh, and these are you know, intimately connected to refuge, an important part of it. And they kind of make a whole together. So part of the ceremony will also be taking these precepts. And so it's part of this class, we're going to explore a little bit your relationship to these precepts as well. And um, I find it very inspiring. Uh, it seems like uh, many times when I, often when I do this refuge class and we're getting ready for the ceremony, uh, some people will come at the last class before the ceremony and say, you know, I'd like to come to the ceremony, I don't want to do it. I'm not ready yet. And then they'll do it the next time I do it. 
but it's a bit, and, they, and it's out of respect for the ceremony and respect for themselves. They feel they're not ready and they need to do something. Or some people will come to me and say, you know, this precepts thing. Uh, can we talk about it a little bit? Because I would really like to do the ceremony, but I drink alcohol. Or, you know, or I do, you know, something goes on with my, you know, I don't, my ethics is not quite what it should be. What, what I think it's a, what Buddhist thinks it should be. And I, so maybe I shouldn't do the refuge ceremony. And to have that kind of sincerity and bring that up and talk about it, I, I'm inspired by that kind of honesty and people trying to figure out what, what to do with themselves. So, um, so I say that here at the beginning that to, to emphasize how this is a really a personal thing and you don't have to hold yourself accountable to some abstract idea of Buddhism or some idea of me being the authority. It's really meant to be your own personal uh, negotiation, navigation, discovery. And I hope in doing that, it actually becomes more important. It really becomes something that you personalize, becomes your own. And that when we meet to have the ceremony, it becomes you know something really flowers and grows or blossoms here. Um, so what we'll do is we'll go through um, we'll have four weeks to discuss and explore and consider these three refuges and the precepts. And we'll do it in different ways. Uh, I'll certainly have things to say. Um, but also an important part is community. And it's very impor- I think it's very helpful for many people to be able to hear themselves speak. Um, and because sometimes only when you speak do you find out what you really believe and how well you understand something and what's going on. And also it's helpful to hear other people besides me. Uh, <laughs> and so part of this will be a chance to get to talk to some of your fellow participants here and share a little bit your thoughts on this and your relationship to it. And hopefully that'll help deepen this whole experience and also create a little temporary community here to do this, this thing. Um, and... Um, uh, there'll probably be some handouts, maybe hopefully every week, and with little writings about that's relevant for the topic. And we have one here that I'll pass out at the end of the evening uh, about going for refuge. And you can read a little bit more about my thoughts about it and, and how it works in Buddhism. Um, and, um, and then, uh, I don't know if I'll do it next week, but maybe in two weeks from now, I'll probably bring a clipboard with a piece of paper. And uh, if you think you want to do the ceremony, then uh, uh, I want you, you need to write your name on the clipboard. And, um, and you need to write it really neat. <laughs> so there can be no mistake, because part of the ceremony, you'll get a document, and I want to spell your name right. <laughs> so, um, so we'll start that. So I say that because sometimes people are sick or can't come. So there'll be two weeks, the last two weeks before the ceremony, that paper will be here, so we have to have that. So one way or the other, we need to get that um, that name from you, that you're going to be here. Um, and then um, the plan is to record this, and uh, so it should be available in Audio Dharma. And, um, and the handouts there, the way we're doing, also should be available there. So if you're sick or can't come one evening, maybe you can pick it up from there. So that was a mouthful to say all that, for me at least. So, um, do you have any questions about that or concerns or comments or anything that you'd like to say at this point? Let's see if, I, if you can please use the mic. It would be not. Uh, repeat the question. Uh, 
The first precept is not to kill. Not to kill? Yeah. And also, is there a date yet for when the, the, the ceremony will be? Yes, uh, uh, May 23rd. And that'll be the fifth, the fifth session? The fifth, yes, fifth session. And this is the first? And this is the first. If I'm at my friend's house and we have a glass of wine together, is that breaking the precept? Oh, you're jumping in right away. <laughs> oh, well, I thought that you mentioned that guy saying, you know, I yeah, yeah, you. yeah, yeah. Well, um, we'll, 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 you know, this is what we'll do in the course of the classes. Have a chance to look at these things. This is just the introductory words, and um, and uh, but since you asked. Um, and I hope we don't st- we get all bogged down if we go that details before we get, get ahead but I'll ask is that um, there are two interpretations primary interpretations of this precept the fifth precept uh, one is strictly yes no alcohol whatsoever the other one is no alcohol to, no alcohol to the point of intoxication and that means even the slightest little you know being tipsy or something and uh, so if it's social drinking or just, you know, just enough and there's no real change of the mind state, you know, then, then that would be allowed. So those are two interpretations that exist. And so I don't know what you want to do with those two interpretations. Hopefully you'll do the thing that's wisest for you. the principle of harmlessness um, and also the idea of refuge in the self. Yeah, yeah. Will we be exploring the principle of um, becoming harmless, I believe that's the word, and also the idea of refuge in the self? You mentioned the mm-hmm. three. Yeah. Um, this, uh-huh. We talked about yeah. it, I think, in a different class. A different class, yeah. Yeah, um, I hope so. Um, uh, the idea of harmlessness, ahimsa, is really pretty core and central to the whole Dharma process. And without the, you know, that really kind of defines the kind of, the, in many ways, all of the Dharma can come flow out of this idea of uh, harmlessness, yeah, harmlessness to oneself and to others. And so it's a very profound idea. So I hope we talk about it. And then, um, been on my mind. And then, um, what was the other one? The, the refuge in the self. Oh, self, yeah. That, all, that we'll talk about that as well. That's also an important idea. But uh, I didn't want to do it the first night because um, um, maybe this is, you know, not such wise thinking on my part. But um, we have here in uh, certain little back room corners of Western culture a little degree of narcissism. And so if we it, it start off right away talking about refuge and self, I was a little bit concerned that it would be misunderstood. So, okay. That's uh, good. That's great. So, um, I think as a way of kind of making this personal a little bit and start start getting kind of into this uh, for yourself, 
uh, I think what would be really nice is if uh, you could have some conversations among yourselves. Uh, and maybe it's uh, the simplest conversation that's the obvious one now. Why are you here? <laughs> what inspired you to come to this class? Uh, what inkling, what intuition, what values, what inspired you? What, what was it that resonated in you? Or what was it, you know, what made you curious, if that's all it is? Um, and, um, and perhaps uh, if you speak about it, um, if you have a long story you can tell about why, why you came to the class, you know, well, you were on this airplane and you met this Buddhist nun and the Buddhist nun was really inspiring and it turned out you had to, the plane was delayed and so you were sitting there in the, ten, you know, in the runway for extra hours and you were really concerned about the nun's welfare and then later she sent you a book and the book was very meaningful and you shared it with your grandmother and, <laughs> you know, um, that, that, I don't think that's so useful in this context, a long story even though the story is nice, is, um, is um, uh, because one way to think about when you talk in this kind of setting, uh, you're not informing the listeners. It's not for the sake of the listeners that you're speaking, which is how people often speak, make an impression on them or inform them or something, but rather you're speaking for your own sake. And so you wanna, if you already know the story, you don't have to say it again. So see if, as you speak, if somehow, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's an art to do this, not so easy to come by, but see if you can find a way to kind of be on the edge of your understanding. So if you're explaining what you already know, maybe you don't need to. Or maybe you can just say the shorthand, you know, very briefly. See if you can kind of get to the edge of your understanding. And it's around this simple idea, because maybe, who knows, maybe you don't even know why you're here. The obvious reasons why you're here um, are only like the tip of the iceberg. And so if you begin, if you only say the obvious, but don't stretch and wonder and, well, you know, maybe you won't discover, you, you won't discover something new. So something like that. But don't, don't make this too heavy. You know, now that I said it, you know, don't try too hard, you know, like you have to. So... Um, so I'd like to propose this, that you form groups of three and you introduce yourselves to each other. And, um, and then the way to do this is, it's, um, is um, uh, say something, but say only basically one point the first time. So the, and uh, don't say all the reasons you can think of why you're here. Just say one point that seems significant. And then the next person does it. And the next person does it. And, and then it'll come back to you. But then you've been a little bit affected, inspired or informed or uh, by what you heard from the others. And you might end up saying something that you never would have thought of. But because you heard something from them that, oh yeah, that also works for me or something. And so the idea, so it's, you go around and if you spend, a, that's another thing, you spend a long time making your point, you're going to have less opportunities to hear them <laughs> and, be, and be affected by them. Does this make sense? So it's a different way of talking, so hopefully it's not too confusing for you than how it's normally done. So you can stay where you are for a moment. And, um, and what I'd like to ask you is to do one more round going around. If you've been doing this, you know, going in a circle, one point thing. And, um, and given, you know, 
maybe given how it all went and all the different things you said and talked about, can you um, uh, somehow find a single sentence that somehow encapsulates why you're here at this refuge class? And for them, you might be repeating something you've said already, that's fine. But is there one sentence that's for you that seems now, after this conversation, seems like a meaningful sentence for you to encapsulate while you're here? And then when we go around the three times, then why don't you just become quiet so we know everyone's done. And then uh, we'll all reform the way we were before. When I ring the bell. So go. Okay. So I imagine that... Um, there were commonalities in some of the conversations, but also each little group had their differences. And, and it's kind of nice, you know, as we form as a group to get some sense of all the different, some of the variety of things that were said or variety of ways in which this was or something. And I wonder if we could just maybe have three or four people from different groups just say something for yourself about what that was like to have that little conversation. So some, simple, some simple comment about it. Nurturing. Heartwarming. Heartwarming. Connected. Connected. Inspiring. Inspiring. Having single words is great, but so you could have you can. <laughs> <laughs> it, it would be okay to have a se- it would be okay to say a sentence. <laughs> Mm, it's a wonderful talk to other people because you come to a greater understanding in that why process while you're here. Great. That's nice to hear. It helped you identify your purpose. Nice. Very good. Okay, so um, I'd like to say a few words about refuge again. Um, So in this Theravadan tradition, so what we're doing here, IMC is part of what's called the Theravadan tradition of Buddhism, Buddhism that's nowadays associated mostly with, in Asia, with uh, Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, Cambodia, in the last century or so, it's kind of appeared in India and has a where it kind of disappeared for many centuries. And um, it is, um, and in the commentaries or in the traditional teachings of this Theravadan Buddhism, they say that refuge has uh, uh, involves three different acts, three different ways of being or something. And I think it's significant to understand these three different aspects of refuge. Um, one aspect of refuge has to do with understanding. So wisdom. So it's not just a passive act of faith. You, know, you, you, trust, you trust yourself to something kind of blindly. But rather, um, uh, we come to some, uh, we understand something about the Dharma, something about practice, something about ourselves, that there's something we really come to understand. And it isn't book learning. It isn't that you read a book and then you can, you know, know what the Four Noble Truths are, or they make sense, boom, 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 and now I know. 
but rather you really know it from the inside out. You know it for yourself. You've recognized it. You've seen it. And so, for example, with the Four Noble Truths, um, uh, yes, you can you know the logic of them. You can say them, but you really wow the Four Noble. Now I see how they work in me. I recognize them in me and in my behavior and where freedom is. So the first meaning of refuge is understanding, to understand something. And there's many things. It's not like a test, like you have to understand one thing. There's a, so, uh, Buddhism is kind of like a, like a you know, jewel that has you know, so many different perspectives, that, you know, so many different facets or, or sides of the jewel that you can see in. And, um, and, um, but to, you know, understanding is important. The second meaning of refuge has to do with intention, to have an intention to do something. So it, it's not just like you, you're allowing trust in yourself, the Dharma, and the Dharma is going to take care of you, and you can just sit back and watch TV or you know, do nothing. Um, but there's an intention that we ha- there's something's asked of us. We have to, it has to make a difference in our life. We want to live a different way and engage in life in a different way. And so part of refuge is to have the intention to practice, intention to live a different way, intention to have our life rooted in uh, new values or different values. Um, um, So there's an intention. So some people might say a commitment. Some people might say uh, to, you know, to infuse a life with a sense of purpose. You have this purpose, this is what you're going to do. The third uh, meaning of refuge, which is what many people associate with much more, is uh, a sense of devotion. And that's a big word, and for some people it's a frightening word, an off-putting word. Some people it's an inspiring word, a very meaningful one for some people. Uh, but it's, uh, it, uh, in this uh, tradition, it has a lot to do with um, uh, uh, what you what, what, what what feel connected to in a heartfelt way. There's a heartfeltness or wholeheartedness or a, um, I think a heartfeltness. This is where your heart resides or this is what resides in your heart. And so uh, it's a place of inspiration, devotion, of love, of uh, care, something you want to nurture, something that you want to um, um, uh, be committed to something. So something, you know, this is kind of an article of faith, something that your warm heart, the warm heartedness can flow towards and be part of and something that can be mutual, mutual reinforcement from your heart to it. And so devotion is one word and there might be other words. Do some of you have other concepts besides devotion that uh, are meaningful for you that you'd rather have than devotion? I'm slightly squeamish around devo- devotion, so mm-hmm. so it's fine for you to be that way. <laughs> Solace. Solace. Okay. Good. Uh, dedication. Dedication is a great word. Verified faith. Verified faith. Mm-hmm. Did we exhaust the possibilities? <laughs> Oh, um, a commitment can be dry, you know, Without so, heart. what? Without heart. Without heart. 
the uh, scholars say the original meaning of uh, when the word faith was first used in the, or not first but it was used in the Middle Ages um, it, it, uh, it had a very different meaning in Europe than what it has come to mean these days um, sometimes it's actually belittled I mean you say something that's your faith it's like that's what you, that's what you should believe you know it's like we don't have to pay attention to that um, but it originally meant uh, more like what you love uh, in the Middle Ages. What, there was no question about believing. Everyone believed in the religion, the gods back then. You know, there wasn't much choice. But it, but it was more a question of what you love. And so, so this, the heartfeltness and the hearts in it. So that's one question. So these, there are three aspects of refuge and how you use these three, you know, so there's these three areas that you, might be useful for you to reflect on. Um, you know, what is your understanding? What understanding do you have that resonates or is compatible or, you know, makes sense to take refuge in? Um, so it's not like refuge in some other reality or the Buddha who's up in the skies, um, but it's taking refuge in some kind of understanding that you have and um, that you can really trust and that there's a commitment to that or an intention. Yet this understanding, I want this to be understanding that I base my life on. Or I want these values to be the basis of my life. And, um, and it's an interesting question, this what you base your life on, what, you have, what a person has faith in, what a person is committed to. Because um, if we don't think about it and do it somewhat consciously, um, we'll be committed to something regardless. And it might not be what you want to be committed to. I've thought, sometimes wondered about the thought experiment of a Martian anthropologist comes to the earth and doesn't understand the languages that people speak, but just goes around and watches people. And then it goes back to Mars to report. And uh, they say, what do these people have faith in down there on planet Earth? And, oh, they have a lot of faith in screens. I mean, they're radiant, they shine, they make this light, they're like jewels, and these people are enamored. They spend a lot of them. They must have a lot of love for these screens. I mean, it's like the highest. It must be the highest. And, and then they come up with, out with new ones. And they spend, a, some of the people in some parts of the country, they spend a tremendous amount of money for these screens. And they, they don't even use one one percent of what these devices can really do, but they love the screens. They spend their time looking. And it used to be they liked each other. (laughs) 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 But, you know, now it's the screens. The couples used to be together and have dinner together in a restaurant and talk nice, and you see the glow in their eyes. But now the glow is they sit there looking at each other's screens. That's what people... So, so I'm trying to say, you know, some people are devoted to money, and that's where their devotion is. Some people to fame, some people to power, some people to sensual pleasure, um, some people to security, all kinds of things that, in a practical, real way, some people, you, that's, you know, if you ask them, if you look at them and see what they live, base their life on, they're basing their life on those things. So to think about it consciously, what do you want your intention to be? What do you want to base your life on? I think is a very profound exercise and well worth uh, considering. And then if you do that, and somehow what you come to somehow is reflected in the Dharma, reflected in the Buddha Dharma and the Sangha, then maybe there's some way in which 
refuge makes sense for you. It's inspiring. It strengthens that and, you know, and makes it more likely you're going to live by those. Something like that. Um, so, and then the, the heartfelt thing, the emotional quality that goes into it. Uh, where, where is your emotional life? Do you have an emotional life? And is your emotional life or your heartfelt life, do you have access to it? Um, I know in my life, even sometimes, uh, the way I live my daily life, sometimes I come, at some point in the day I realize, oh wait, Gil, you were so involved in some project, something you were doing, so involved in that screen, that actually you're not in touch anymore here. And so then I take the time to reconnect. But it's so easy to kind of lose touch with some inner life. It's just so simple and easy to do it. And if um, and some people will spend months, years, not connected to that. And um, so where is your heart? You know, can you find, what, what role does your heart or what role does your emotional life or... Again, th- th- these words are sometimes difficult for people because not everyone relates to these words. And so it might sound like, well, if I don't have heart or emotion or something, then I'm not good or something. But uh, there are different words, different concepts speak to different people. And, but uh, some kind of, I like the word depth myself. And, um, you know, is there a sense of inner depth and inner, or inner connectedness? Or is there, you know, something, and that maybe that, maybe the word devotion has some value because maybe it's, you know, more neutral, or I don't know. We're looking for a word, right? But the tradition itself says understanding, intention, and devotion. So how you find your way with that is part of your reflection and your consideration. Um, The first refuge is refuge in the Buddha. And I want to leave you this evening uh, not without talking about it a lot, because maybe that can be the topic for next week. But I want to leave you with some ideas so you can reflect on this Buddha idea. Um, the first idea around Buddha is that um, um, after the Buddha died, his disciples who knew him and survived him went around India teaching. And sometimes uh, people were inspired by the teachings they heard, just like they were for the Buddha. When the Buddha was alive and they were inspired by the Buddha, his teachings, uh, they would say to the Buddha, I now would like to go for refuge in you. I'm going for refuge in you. I entrust myself with you or... I orient myself around what you stand for and what you're about and your dharma. But so after the Buddha died and his disciples were teaching, occasionally there were people who said to the disciple, I would like to go for refuge in the Sangha, refuge in the dharma, and I want to go to refuge in you because you were the one who taught me this. And what the... Uh, the disciples, uh, the record shows every time that happened, the disciples said, no, you can't do that. The only person you can take refuge to is the Buddha. And, um, and so why, did it, why that? Why the Buddha? Why keep referring back to the Buddha? And there's some theories about this. One is that none of the teachers wanted to have that kind of personal focus. 
that Buddhism is not meant to be a personality cult. And so, uh, and so you find in the history of Theravada and Buddhism, uh, uh, actually a, a paucity, a very few uh, individuals who stand out as being the great teachers. There have been, I think, a lot of great teachers, but that wasn't the, you know, there was, there was a kind of like n- deferring to the Buddha, not focusing on, on me as a, as a teacher or as a great person or something. And so by focusing on this person who died, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you can't quite have the same kind of living personality cult that sometimes people form, form a cult around and have all kinds of challenges. That's one theory. Another theory is that um, the Buddha himself, um, once he became enlightened, did not refer to himself in ordinary human terms. Uh, and he had this interesting name for him, title for himself that in English translates to uh, uh, the one who is thus, or the one who has gone thus, Tathagata. And, um, you know, you know, you go up to someone and say, you know, who are you? And the person says, I'm thus, I'm so, I'm like this. You know, that doesn't help very much. And conventionally, you know, just, I'm just like that. I'm just like this. You get, you, this, you know, they don't give you an answer. They don't define themselves. They don't limit themselves and say, I'm, you know, I'm this, I'm that, and you know, whatever. It's just like, I'm, I'm just, I'm so. In a certain way, it's irritating to have someone say that to you. <laughs> but in a certain way, it's very inspiring. And in certain contexts, it can be very, very profoundly meaningful to have a sense that you don't have to be defined. You don't have to be something. You don't have to be limited by, uh, you know, a noun. I'm a parent. I'm a worker. I'm a son. I'm a, you know, you know I'm a meditator. I'm an enlightened Buddha or, you know, all these things. You just, it, it just kind of is relatively vague, but very open and maybe in that openness, very free not to be defined by anything. I'm just so. So in that kind of way of defining himself, the Buddha was not intentionally not defining himself in human terms. And that's been a little bit challenging for scholars and individuals who feel like I only know the Buddha if I know him as a person. You know, I have to know, you know, when he, where he was born and how he lived and what kind of food he ate and when he went to sleep and all these details about how the Buddha was. What's the emotional life of the Buddha? I'm sure he had all those things, but that's not what was important. What was important was something different. And, um, and in fact, some of the ways that the Buddha talked about, when he talked about uh, having faith in the Buddha, faith in him, he said that when you have faith in the Buddha, you have faith in the Buddha's bodhi, faith in the Buddha's awakening. So the way in which the mind or the heart can be free where the heart and mind is not constrained, is not constricted, is not oppressed, is not uh, limited, is not uh, hurting, not broken, but it's free and open. That's what we take refuge in the Buddha. And so by, uh, by saying, you know, I take refuge in the Buddha, it's kind of like uh, we're not taking refuge in the Buddha as a historical person. But if you take refuge in a disciple, like in a teacher or something, then we're back to this person thing. And so it's kind of like moving it away from some of the usual, ordinary, mundane 
identifications people have of what a person means. And I, in my, my understanding, um, you see this, I, I saw this um, um, very clearly in some of the uh, uh, iconic, iconogra- icons and paintings and statues of the Buddha. They're almost all very idealized. We have no idea what he looked like. Um, but, um, but they're always very idealized. And so it's very easy in, in Western psychological terms to say that the Buddha represents an archetype, a potential. And, uh, and that's, what it's, that's the role of the Buddha, is to represent something that, goes, uh, that is a potential we have towards freedom. And in that way, it's not so important that the Buddha is um, you know, who he was historically. And so in Tibetan Buddhism, they, in Tibetan Buddhism, they have these... Um, there, the Buddhas in, in, in Tibetan teachings is um, almost, you know, in Theravadan Buddhism, our kind of Buddhism, it emphasizes Buddha was a historical person, kind of. But in Tibetan Buddhism, it seems like the Buddha becomes this almost like godlike figure, like grand and co- cosmic being that kind of, you know. And, but the more he becomes a cosmic being, the more the paintings of him are like cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, and so, if you can see this book here. Um, so here are the Buddha. And um, it's kind of a little bit cartoonish, right? I think it's fair to say. I don't think it's disrespectful to say that, given what it is. And, uh, and you have this uh, halo around him, his head, and that's nice. And if you can't see it so well here, but you see there's also kind of a halo, or this, this, um, this whole circle of energy or like hair or like energy flowing out from his back and maybe from his spine going out in all directions there and and um, and sometimes you have other kind of images or the diagrams of things on the chest or in the middle of the forehead and um, and here you have also this is only part of the picture but there's all these flowers here and they're kind of another circle around it um, one way of understanding this is that, um, is that when you sit down to meditate and you're really centered, peaceful, focused, when you, things come into harmony within oneself, that um, this is a little bit like how it feels. This is a little bit like a mirror of a person who's really um, focused or really free, centered in meditation. That make some sense, and so, so the Buddha that we take refuge in, you know, is certainly the historical person in a certain way, but it's also a, a potential that resides in everyone, and that the Buddha represents the fulfillment of this potential. And so, you find in, in the early Buddhist literature that uh, the amazing thing where the Buddha is never is always depicted better than anyone else. It can be second best to no one. It's, it's quite remarkable. You know, it just absolutely can't be second best. He's like, he's super everything. And uh, it's a little bit over the top, you know, this emphasis, I think. Um, unless you understand it in the more uh, psychological terms, that uh, what's be- being, what the Buddha has become is not so much an historical person, but a representation of the fulfillment of a potential we all have. 
And maybe we're not going to live up to the full fulfillment of it. Um, that's what the Buddha represents, is the full fulfillment of it. Um, and whether he did that or not is kind of secondary to him being representative of a direction. It's like a North Star. This is possible. This is a direction to go in. And that's been very inspiring for me. Uh, I don't know how far I'll get in my practice. It, that doesn't really matter so much to, for me, how far I get. What matters more is that I'm, I'm on this path that kind of has that North Star. And, um, and I'm not really counting on, you know, the full, you know, inhabiting the full potential like what, you know, this, what the Buddha represents. It's, you know, I don't, but it's very inspiring to me to be on the path in that direction. So that's one way of this idea of refuge in the Buddha is we're taking refuge in the potential, the awakening, the freedom that the Buddha attained or the Buddha represents. And in doing that, we're, we're taking refuge because we believe that this is something that's valuable to understand in our own experience, to have some kind of freedom, mental freedom, heart's freedom, that it's valuable to have the intention to make this part of our life and to give this life, this is a meaningful life, this is maybe the most meaningful thing to do is to live into this potential. And, uh, and to have a sense of devotion to that, or love for that, or heartfeltness. Yes, this possibility of freedom of heart, freedom of mind, this kind of uh, uncontracted, unconstricted, unlimited, unoppressed inner life, that's worth a lot. This, uh, that's worth more than most things that uh, we read about in the newspaper that people pursue. If you want to contrast, you know, the value of the Dharma with something else, just kind of read the newspaper and, and try to get a sense from there what most people are interested in, <laughs> in there, especially the front page. So, um, so the Buddha. So we have the Buddha. We have the idea of understanding, the idea of intention, and the idea of devotion. What is your understanding of the Buddha? Have you ever thought about it? What could it, what could be your understanding of the Buddha? What could be an understanding of the Buddha that's meaningful for you, given your encounter of the Dharma, your encounter with yourself, uh, your meditation, your kind of times in your life when you feel most free or most whole, most integrated, most something? Uh, what is it that Buddha could represent for you? What, what does the Buddha mean? Um, in what way can the Buddha, the potential of the Buddha, the awakening of the Buddha, the inner life of the Buddha, your inner life, be a refuge for you, a support for you, a guide for you, a place that you can, in times of trouble and challenges, you can know, I can rely on this. I don't know what to do here, but I can rely, at least I rely on this. So we will, um, yes, please. Um, here at IMC, we rely so much on direct experience rather than concepts. And um, I'm sure a lot of us really value that. So maybe this is an innocent question, but really for, for a lot of us, and certainly reflected in the group discussion, 
the only direct experience or one of the main direct experiences of the Buddha we have is, is you or is one of the teachers here. So while I understand the value of, of kind of taking that burden away from you, um, what are we supposed to do with our devotion to, to a you or an Andrea? Or what, what do we do with that matter and that, that, uh-huh. that stuff? That's, um, a, that's a sincere question. I appreciate it. Thank you. And, and, what, and, where, um, and then isn't the idea of the Buddha, you're asking us to ponder, a more of a concept rather. How do we make that a direct experience when the only direct experience we know is the teacher that sits mm-hmm. or that we listen to every day? So the uh, one of the best ways of, I forget exactly now the word you use, but of honoring a teacher, relating to a teacher that inspires you, that's meaningful for you, is to... Uh, is to uh, transform that inspiration, that value, into doing your own practice, and so make it make it your own. And um, because it's uh, nice to have a teacher, I mean, I've been it's been a very important part of my life to be inspired by teachers, to be inspired by practitioners, other practitioners, senior practitioners. I don't think I could have. I, I know I couldn't have practiced as much as I did without the model, the support of teachers and senior practitioners. So it's wonderful to have it. Um, and, you know, you don't want to do that all the time. You know, that's, that there's, you, know you don't want to stop there. And so the idea is to take that and make it your own or to find it in yourself enough so that you might always have some respect for a teacher, some reverence for a teacher who you have or something. But, you, you know, it's... It's, you, you know, after a while, it's, you, know, you can take it or leave it, the teacher, because you have it in yourself. So that's, that would be the best practice. And um, any other comments before we end? Questions? Anything that fe- you order to feel more complete today? I don't want you to leave and feel kind of incomplete or troubled by anything or wish you had said to ask the question. I guess that's pre- I take that as a good sign. <laughs> so um, we have this handout and if you'd like to just I think it'd be nice if you read it just as uh, part of the class and part of the whole preparation and and reflection, and uh, maybe a couple of you could just or spread it out from you in a fan-like way or something, and um, and then we'll uh, meet again next week, and I uh, look forward to our continuing this adventure of exploring this part of uh, of the of Buddhism. So thank you all. <laughs>